Lord, we're grateful for what you've given us. Uh, Christmas is a time of giving. It's a time of also receiving. And this morning, we recognize that we have been recipients of the grace of God. So, Lord, we thank you for giving us this undeserved mercy and grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We thank you that we have the privilege and the opportunity to come into this old space and to make much of your name, to give you glory, to be reminded that you sent your son into a world that despised him so that he might atone for the sins of the world. So we remember that this morning as we dive into this passage, Lord. Lord, convict our hearts. Lord, teach us things that we have forgotten or we have not yet discovered. Lord, we pray that you would show yourself to us to be kind and gracious and merciful and that you always accomplish the words that we read in the book that you've given us. So Lord, we thank you for these things and we pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. All right, well, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1. While you're getting there, what I like about Advent, one of my favorite things about Advent, is it reminds us of the tension. All right, Advent, believe it or not, is a little bit of tension that kind of arises in our hearts. And what I like about that is it reminds us that we face some really very real tension. Really very real tension. I just made up that phrase right now. But we face tension between what our deepest needs are and our immediate sufferings are. And Advent kind of faces us to that. And as we go through Matthew's account, which we're going to be doing over the next four weeks, uh, recounting the birth of Jesus, we're going to see this truth sort of crystallized before us. And it's this. It's that God emerges from the chaos we create to introduce Christ as the answer. It's just not really more complicated than that. I tried to make it more complicated than that. That's what I came up with. God emerges from the chaos we create to introduce Christ as the answer. Now, the dilemma is that God is all about God's glory. In case you thought that God was all about making you happy, wrong-o, God is all about His glory. Not the kind of glory we see when dudes score touchdowns and dance around like they've just solved third-world hunger. All right, That's not what kind of glory we're talking about. But glory that comes with being holy, set apart, not like us, creator above all. Like that glory. God receiving the totality of glory is actually our deepest need. And he answers this glory dilemma that we all face by sending his son, Jesus. And in Jesus, we find the answer for both our deepest need as well as our immediate suffering. Because When our deepest need has been met in Christ, it gives our suffering reason, meaning, and purpose, and perspective. And that's sort of the Grand Canyon view of what we're coming into this morning, with the main point being that God uses lowly people to fulfill His lasting promises. That's what we're going to see this morning, that God uses lowly people. I'll just put myself in that category. I won't speak for you, but he uses lowly people to fulfill his lasting promises. God loves the underdog. When you read scripture, you get a picture of this. 
He's the team owner that willingly takes the last pick on the NFL draft every year. That's right, man. We're one minute in, and the football analogies are already off the hook for you guys right now. So if you look down really quick and take a look at chapter 1 in Matthew, verses 1 through 17, just let your eyes scan through all those names. It's hard to get super pumped about what we're about to tackle this morning. Okay, Matthew starts with what most of us dread reading when we open our Bibles, which is a genealogy or a family history, which is basically a bunch of names that are impossible to pronounce and leave us wondering what possible relevance they could have on our lives. So when I was growing up, my my grandpa, a guy that we called Pops, he happened to be a genealogist. Lucky me. And this guy... What that meant was that this guy would literally corner me at Thanksgiving and Christmas every year and run through a fresh list of dead relatives, which would in turn cause me to start contemplating my own death. I'm not kidding. It was brutal. They literally had not invented a turkey coma strong enough to knock this one out yet. I'm telling you. Now, although Pops was not a guy known for his brevity, what he was trying to give me a picture of was who I was, right? The people who married the people they married, moved to the places they moved, worked the jobs they worked, made the decisions they made, which led me to being the person that I was. Ronnie, you are not making this genealogy stuff any more interesting right now. Give me a minute, all right? This morning, we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. A genealogy, mind you, that didn't just provide you with Physical life, which is what we think when we look at a family tree. Who are these people that gave me the life I had? So this genealogy didn't just provide us with physical life. This is unique. It's because of these names that we're going to read that we have not just physical life, but spiritual life. Actually, the more important of the lives that we have. The life we receive as we look at how Jesus came into the world is Nothing short of a light beaming into and bolting through the darkness. Bolting through the darkness. In chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 4, if you want to look ahead to Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Matthew quotes from the book of Isaiah when he says this, The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. It's right there. It's written, black and white, right behind us. And I love that last line. I love that line, a light has dawned. And it's what we use to title this four-week series of Advent. A light has dawned. Now listen, to set up, I think it's acceptable for us to hold to some Christian traditions. All right? It's okay for us to hold to some of the Christian traditions of our culture and the things that we do leading up to the big day. I mean, you are not keeping the Christ out of Christmas if you enjoy some good eggnog and occasionally let the words Santa and Claus slip uh, out of your mouth. God's going to forgive you for that last one. I promise. All right? It's okay that Christmas encompasses all these things. Because Christmas for us, in the culture that we're living in, it encompasses a lot of things. You guys experienced some of those things that it encompasses just a few days ago on Thanksgiving. It's, it's family. 
its presence, its relatives, its food, its weight gain, its chaotic, its stressful, its busy, its beautiful, its bankruptcy. It's all of these things all wrapped into one. But what Christmas really is, Charlie Brown, is that time when we're reminded that 2,000 years ago, a light dawned for those dwelling in darkness in the region and shadow of death. So we want to build our traditions well, but we want to also do it without bypassing the richer and the deeper beauty that we know Christmas to be. So I'm saying both and as we launch into the Christmas season in Advent. And Matthew is going to help us with that over the next four Sundays. If you read Luke's account, there's two uh, gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus. One is in Luke, one is in Matthew. If you read Luke's account of Christ's birth, it's amazing. I think we went through it a couple of years ago. It's this beautiful, sweeping narrative that has shepherds and choirs of angels and the voice of God like reverberating through the starlit sky. It's insane. It's beautiful. But Matthew, what we're going to see the next couple of chapters in Matthew, man, it just it reads like a Grisham novel, right? If I'm allowed to say that. It reads like this dark thriller with this crazy, controversial cast of characters illustrating to us that God, like we've learned through our Salt and Light series, God is unconventional. He's totally unconventional in how he unleashes his plans on his people. So let's pick up. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. You can follow along. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Let's just stop right there for one second. So what Matthew does is he makes it plain from the beginning that he's writing about Jesus. This book is about Jesus. It's about the promised Messiah. This Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the one that's been prophesied about. He is the one that they've been waiting for. He is the offspring of Abraham that was prophesied in Genesis 15.4. He is the offspring of King David from 2 Samuel 7 when Nathan the prophet said, I will raise offspring from your own body and establish his kingdom forever. Like, nobody else gets a forever kingdom but Jesus. So Nathan was prophesying about Christ who would fulfill that forever kingdom thing that we're talking about this morning. All the prophetic passages in the Old Testament that talked about the coming king and deliverer, they were talking about Jesus. And Matthew's saying, just in case you don't miss this, this is the guy. That's what he's saying. The Jewish people Matthew's writing to, they needed to know who he was writing about. Matthew doesn't screw around, right? He reveals the main character on the first page. And what this tells us is that Jesus had a genealogy. He had an earthly line. And although we touched on this when we started our Salt and Light series in September, it's important to point that out. Just like us, he had a family history. And just like us, it was a mixed bag. It was a mixed bag, which we'll get to in a minute. So what I want to do is I want to pick up with the rest of the text. And by the way, I wasn't able to fit in a linguistics course uh, before breakfast this morning. So go with me on these pronunciations, all right? If anybody laughs, man, I'll just make you come up and read it and we'll, we'll see how you do with it, right? Um, but don't worry, I'm the guy who said facade instead of facade last week. All right? There's no pretense here whatsoever. 
My wife called out my sin last week, and I said, you're right, I looked at that really wrong, and I've never heard of the word facade, but I thought maybe I'd make something up in the moment. So let's pick up with verse 2. Let's read this genealogy. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nishon, and Nishon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of uh, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. I'd like to take a breath here. Picking up in verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abayud, and Abayud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. I mean, that's just a mic drop right there. Boom. And then this is what Matthew does in verse 17. He gives us sort of the layout and the outline of why he just listed what he listed. It says this, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I'm just catching my breath. Now, I don't have to go back too far on either side of my family before I run into what this is, which is a colorful, and that's putting it nicely and mildly, a colorful cast of characters. I had an uncle on my mom's side who everyone said was connected to the mob out in uh, New Jersey. Sorry, Long family. Um, Seriously, it's no joke. And now I'm literally fearing for my life because the warehouse is probably bugged, you know? But honestly... I don't know if it was true, but I do know that that dude gave me more money than every other uncle in my family combined. So I can attest to that. My dad's side was filled with a long line of sailors and men who drank too much, who never lived to be 70, which is obviously a real fun thought for me to contemplate as I go to bed every night and I'm approaching that. It's a dark and discouraging line. It's dark and it's discouraging on both sides of my family. It's a mess It's chaotic. And then you come to my dad, who was just like all the men before him, until Jesus pierced the darkness of his life, filled the emptiness in his heart, and saved him. So instead of being a branch on a family tree that was rotting from the root, 
he was reconnected as a new branch to a living tree. The light of Christ, it transformed him and it extended to some of us in the family. And it was the same story with my mom. There was a lot of darkness and light in the family of Jesus. And it would be hard for any of us to look back on our generations without running into just some terrible, horrendous things. I don't think that's a wild guess. I don't think I'm reaching into that if I were to get a picture of your family line. But what God does is he redeems family lines that have failed for years to be godly, to become godly. And some of you, man, you just experienced the effects of ungodly family lines three days ago, didn't you? Three days ago on Thanksgiving. And the difference is startling to see, isn't it? Especially if your extended family is one who does not know Jesus. It's startling. It's literally the difference between light and darkness. Am I lying? It's that stark. The, the contrast is crazy, right? And you can see it in the attitudes, can't you? You can see it in the language. You can see it in the consumption. You can see it in the total lack of relational grace. Maybe I'm just describing my family right now. But it's all there. Some of you guys are shaking your heads up and down at me so hard right now, you're going to snap your necks. I see you noted out there. What just happened is real. But it's a distinction that should drive us to being a kind and a gracious light when we've been around those who are living in darkness. We get a face-to-face view with what Matthew is talking about in this genealogy when we just look at our own family. And we don't even have to go back that far. Maybe we don't have to go back at all. We all know what it's like to live in that darkness, to see others compelled by that darkness, don't we? We all know what it's like to have to do things when there isn't any light, don't we? We run into things. We fall. We can't see what's in front of us because it's dark. And when it's dark, we make bad decisions because we have not even bad light to help guide us. We have no light To help guide us. This is what it was like when we look at some of the generations of Jesus. Right? It's just this mixed, crazy bag. Let's go through some of these people. Let's talk about Abraham. Let's talk about Isaac. Let's talk about Jacob. Let's talk about the level of disobedience that existed in their lives as God was calling them to fulfill his plan. Let's talk about the way some of them cheated on their wives. Cheated on their spouses. Let's talk about their stubbornness. God says, do this, and they go, yeah, I think I'm going to do that. Right? I'm just out. You tell me to go right, I'm going to go left. Let's talk about the lying. I mean, the amount of untruth that exhibited and characterized their their lives. When you think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this family line that didn't really seem to improve and get any better with age. And what about Judah? What about David? And we think about Judah, and we think about the sexual sin. We think about David, we think about the murder and the sexual sin that characterized parts of his life. A man that the Bible talks about was a man after God's own heart. A man man that God had called to lead the charge of Israel and be the line of which Christ would someday be born. That was David. He was embroiled in all of that mess. It was dark. What about Solomon? You think about Solomon, you think about this high-ranking, richest, wisest, influential man who made a mess of his life because the things that God had blessed him with were also the things that unwound him and undid him. 
They became burdens to him. God had given him much, and he did much to unravel those things and create idols out of everything God had given to him. By the time he got to the end of his life, it's sad. If you want to know how sad Solomon was, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Just a sad guy that was questioning everything, that thought nothing had meaning anymore. And he's known as the wisest man in recorded history. We see some of these other lesser-known names like Rehoboam and Abijah. These were wicked, wicked children of the king who thirsted for power, who didn't follow after the Lord the way that their parents did. They tried to make their own life, right, apart from the Lord. It didn't go well for them. They rebelled against the God of their parents. They took their own path. Their kingdoms eventually were all snatched from them. And it was typically due to controversy and murder and scandal and all kinds of a mess of other things. Then we get to a guy like Joseph. A guy like Joseph that was just trying to obey the Lord when he took Mary as his wife. And yet, even for somebody that was doing his best to obey what Christ was commanding him to do, we see him just kind of embroiled in suspicion and scandal and rumors and gossip. And then we get to five women that are listed in this account. Tamar, Bathsheba, Rahab, Ruth, and Mary. This is unusual because typically when you read about family lines in Scripture, they only list the men. But Matthew is pointing out here that God's plan was this wide. And he used these women. He used these women who, some were Gentiles. We're talking about Gentiles and prostitutes on this list. We're talking about adulterers on this list. We're talking about shamed women on this list. So we're talking about men and women who God said, I'm going to take you, I'm going to pick you, I'm going to choose you, and this is how I'm going to bring my son into this world. God redeems things, doesn't he? God's the redeemer. God redeems lying. He redeems cheating. He redeems stubbornness. He redeems disobedience. He redeems sexual sin. He redeems children born out of wedlock. He redeems adulterous affairs. He redeems incest. He redeems people who have worshipped other gods and come from different religions that rejected God. He redeems wealthy people who use their money for power and abuse their power to acquire greater wealth. Like nothing's off limits for who God wants to use. Nothing's off limits. He just kind of looks around, he grabs who he wants, and he redeems their lives as he chooses To use them. God is greater than the greatness of people's sin. And do you think that there are things that you can't come back from after this? Is there a thought in you that says, man, I just went too far. I can't come back from that. I can't reel back from that. Do you really believe after seeing this, that there's something that you can't come back from, that God is not going to use you in? God accomplishes his purposes. There's nothing you or your family can do to undo what God has purposed for those who love him. I mean, none of these men and women in the genealogy of Jesus had any power to thwart the plan of God who promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 that his generations would be like the sand of the sea. They'd be uncountable. That's God saying, look, Abe, the fact is, is that 
the family line that you're going to produce is going to be insanely ridiculous. I'm still going to make it happen. My son is still going to be born. He's still going to be the redeemer of all people. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Listen to this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God will accomplish His purpose. And so the question is whether we who are called according to His purpose believe in the character of the God who called us. That is the question. Do you believe that the God who literally worked through a Rubik's cube of wicked generations to bring us His Son doesn't have the rest of it worked out? It's not like God went on an extended hiatus after Jesus was born, right? He hasn't been on a Sabbath from social media like some of my hipster friends have tried to do this past week. I mean, he's been mounting a comeback that's been 2,000 years in the making so far. And he will accomplish all that he purposes. All that he purposes, like he did with this cast of characters that we just briefly went through. Three things that Matthew's genealogy reminds us of. And I hope this can be encouraging and I hope this can be hope-filled for us. Number one, God's plan included sinful people. God's plan included sinful people. God knew what kind of deck he'd been dealt after we sinned. Do you ever think about it like that? There was no surprise there when Adam and Eve did what Adam and Eve did. He knew what he'd been dealt with after we sinned. We were sinners now. I mean, you think God is somehow absent through the selection process? He raises up people who are unfaithful, families who are unfaithful, husband and wives who are unfaithful, kids who are unfaithful, and what does he do? He redeems them. Remember Noah? Remember that guy? Remember that guy that God chose? Him and the other seven members of his family? He was going to flood the world, but he was going to save them. Remember him? Remember his faithfulness to God through that? What happened after that? Remember what happened to Noah after God saved him? The ark landed safely. The land becomes dry. Noah starts planting trees, raising a family, building houses, doing what Noah did. What happened after the flood? Well, he didn't achieve perfection after the flood. In fact, there's a story that talks about how he liked to drink a little bit too much. And he got in a little bit of trouble and he had a big, big battle with one of his sons. Your sin, listen to this, your sin has been included in God's plan. So don't be so arrogant because your sin has been included in that plan. God doesn't put you on the naughty list and withhold his gifts because 2015 was an extra sinful year. That's not what he does. That's not what he's ever done. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that your sin won't keep you from God's blessings either. And here's what I mean. We essentially have a party here every Sunday at Substance, all right? 
It doesn't include alcohol, all right, you know, unless someone's been spiking the coffee with Baileys. That does not happen. I'm just throwing it out there. But every Sunday, too far? Every Sunday for two hours, what do we do? Now, we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate the good news. And, you know, man, you can choose to miss out on that. But you also can't blame God because you decide not to take part in the blessings that he's given you. And, you know, even beyond Sunday, even when you find yourself resisting, his plan includes your stubbornness and your impatience and your intolerance and your rebelliousness. I mean, don't worry, man. You are not going anywhere if you've been saved. Sometimes you just think you've left, right? You're like a kid who gets mad at his parents, thinks he's running away, but never makes it to the end of the cul-de-sac. It's just sad. It's just sad. The point is that we have no power to obstruct God's plan. Let that give you reassurance. God's not weaker than your greatest weakness. And he's stronger than your ability to sin. God's plan included sinful people. Number two, God's plan included suffering people. It also included suffering people. It was our sin that required a plan, and that plan would have to be worked out through the pain and suffering that's due to our sin. I mean, there's a stream of men and women in this genealogy who suffered. Abraham suffered through infertility. Isaac suffered from a massive, dysfunctional family. Jacob suffered through the loss of a child and just massive infighting between his own kids. Bathsheba suffered through adultery and the loss of her husband and her child. David suffered through betrayal and murder and threats and the death of his people due to some impulsive decision-making that he made as king. Ruth suffered through poverty and the loss of her husband. Solomon suffered through depression and despondency. Mary suffered through gossip, slander, and a ruined reputation that followed her her entire life. Joseph suffered through much of the same, like we covered. Jesus suffered above all. All of this was poured on Jesus. Jesus is the suffering king. God's plan included suffering people because, first and foremost, it included a king that would suffer for the people who suffer for the sake of the gospel. Suffering is how God shows his people their need for salvation and reminds them that God raised Jesus to show us that someday suffering would suffer defeat. Why do we need Jesus? But to heal both our spiritual and physical suffering once and for all. That's the hope. That's the hope of Advent. So God's plan included sinful people. It included suffering people. And third, it included the Savior of all people. Because all of God's plans, everything we talk about on Sunday, if the messages all sound the same, number one, it's because they are. Because everything we talk about leads back to Jesus. Everything that God does in this book, all of his plans, all of his ideas, all of the craziness and insanity, it all leads back to Jesus. And when we get to Jesus, God continues to use the church who suffers through pain to continue this genealogy. Here's the thing. If you've been saved, you're one of the unwritten names connected to this genealogy. 
Your sin and suffering are what led you to a suffering Savior that is part of the completion of God's plan. You are in this. You are in this. We are in this. God's plan for your life is to lead you to Jesus so that you can lead others to Jesus. And God can continue to extend this genealogy that He's written. How many times could you look into the stories of these men and women and wonder if God was still there? How many times could you look into these stories and wonder if he was still in control, if he was still unveiling his plan? Almost every story, you can look in there and go, God, were you even there? Are you here? How many times can you look at your own life and say, God, are you still there? Is there still a plan in place? Was there ever a plan? Those are real questions for us to ask and for us to consider and for us to raise up before the Lord. Was there ever a plan, God? Because I don't, man, I don't see anything right now. I don't see how all of this is going to come together for good because I love you. All I can see is brokenness. I'll just let you finish that call. <laughs> By the way, that was sovereignly designed for whatever reason. That's how we roll in this church. What's interesting about sin is that it dims our light, doesn't it? It obscures our vision for God. It creates a layer and a covering over our eyes that when life's circumstances and situations start to weigh down, we lose our sight. We lose our vision for Christ. We let our circumstances push against the very real reality that God is still in control. Sin dims our light, but if it's the light of Christ, if it's the light of Christ that is in you, it never truly goes out because the light of Christ is a light that can't be extinguished like we see in all the men and women in this genealogy. Every year, Christmas reminds us of that. It reminds us that a light dawned in a dark world and that God uses lowly people to fulfill his promises. We are part of that lasting legacy. Amen? If not... We're simply part of a lost lineage. So look around you. This is the legacy in this warehouse this morning in November. Look around you and see the legacy of God. See your church family. See the legacy that God is building in this small community, in this small warehouse. This is the lineage. This is the legacy that God is building up. A people who carry the very light of Christ. It's astonishing, isn't it? And we can spread and we can share that light. And wherever it goes, it's going to break whatever darkness it confronts. Because God is already one. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose. Victory has been established. We are people who walk carrying 
the trophy. One. First. There's nothing in our lives that's going to stop the Lord from working His grace and His mercy and His love and His compassion through our lives. Amen? Let's pray.